Okay, I think we might be on the air right now. All right, well, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And Happy New Year. They're already celebrating New Year in all sorts of places around the world. And good riddance to 2007. Well, I had a fine year in 2007, <laughs> so I am one of those people who is in some ways sorry to see a year go. But, of course, the promise of a new year uh, is always something to behold as well. Yes, indeed. And, of course, it's going to be a little snowy out there tonight here in the Michigan area. So, if you, at all possible, walk to those parties. <laughs> Don't drive your car. Indeed. You may be able to get away with drunk driving on a snowy night because the cops may have better things to do, but uh, you don't want to spend the night in the pokey. No, and uh, I know you can't explicitly say this over the air, but I uh, can. Uh, Take a cab if you are in no shape to drive or you have friends who are in no shape to drive. Uh, They are equipped, they are prepared, and uh, they are ready to do the driving for you, so... Don't be foolish with yourself uh, or another person's life. Take a cab. Take a cab. <coughs> Public service announcement there. Or, in some cases, walk. Walk, walk. yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, a big uh, week, obviously, with respect to the uh, Benazir Bhutu assassination. I think that it's uh, got amazing parallels to the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, Disputed in a number of ways. Autopsies, not no autopsy properly performed uh, a debate about how she actually died either from gunshot wound which seems to be the now emerging story in that regard and uh, it was ironic I was actually listening to BBC around five in the morning Um, I went home for the holidays and no news of the assassination but when I woke up uh, about four hours later that was the big news I would uh, definitely recommend an article by Tariq Ali, uh, Daughter of the West, which uh, ironically uh, is published in the 13th of uh, December edition of the London Review of Books. He wrote the article on the 30th, so obviously um, Benazir Bhutu was still alive. But uh, it's a very interesting perspective on the whole history of the Bhutu clan and... uh, just how prevalent violence has been in the deaths of many of the people in that family. Um, It's just bordering on the bizarre. Yeah, and again, that's one of the parallels to the Kennedy family. Um, And, of course, there's all sorts of, you know, uh, comments online, various uh, news sources and websites, and in many uh, places she's being heralded as, you know... uh, a patron saint, if you will, of democracy, a martyr for sure. Others, uh, more critical, uh, less generous, uh, focus on the corruption charges and so forth. And uh, it's difficult for me to talk about. I was saddened sure. by the, uh, the whole thing. Uh, because when she kind of first burst onto the uh, international scene, uh, when she became uh, prime minister, the first woman prime minister of uh, an Islamic state, um, I really uh, became quite interested in her. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, um, very articulate, um, very well-educated, very thoughtful person. And uh, what the heck, I'll say it, uh, very beautiful woman, too. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Very charismatic. 
<clears throat> and so... And definitely influenced by Western thinking. You know, she was educated in Oxford. In fact, her son, who's... Uh, now being uh, pushed yeah, to the uh, forefront the age of, the of 19. Pakistan People's Party. Uh, not even eligible to be prime minister for six years, but uh, he's ironically attending Oxford University like she did. Um, I think that the great thing about Tariq Ali, who I've read a number of his books, a highly recommended intellectual uh, that addresses the uh, greater area, and if you've been listening to Gray Matters over the past several years, we keep talking about Pakistan that it's this uh, cauldron of turmoil Indeed. and corruption and the murky aspects of uh, the ISI and the connection with the CIA and the war in Afghanistan during the 1980s is remarkable stuff. And, of course, her father was actually executed by Azia ul Haq, who uh, was A our military dictator, man in Islamabad, shall we say, yeah. uh, during the 1980s. And he, of course, died in a uh, plane explosion. Uh, that's still unanswered, uh, who was right. behind that. Uh, all sorts of suspects, of course, uh, have emerged in the Benazir Bhutu assassination because uh, there's no other way, way to put it. That's what, what it is. It's yeah. a political assassination. And uh, certainly there are uh, hints that uh, elements of the military could be behind it. Um, by the way, the military, uh, the Pakistani military, um, as well as the very shadowy ISI, were uh, kept out of the 9-11 uh, Commission report uh, by uh, Philip Zelico, uh, a close confidant and, uh, shall we say, friend of Condoleezza Rice. And this is one of the areas of the 9-11 Commission report here in America that uh, certainly left a lot to be desired. Um, when you actually read some of the details, uh, far more money came from Pakistan uh, than even Afghanistan. And I would also reinforce the notion that uh, not one Afghani or Iraqi is linked to the 9-11 plot here in America. <laughs> and yet we are in messy occupations of both territories. Pakistan, of course, in the middle of this uh, incredibly strategic region of the world sort of in the middle of the Iran-Afghanistan on the one side and the India-China on the other side. So it's always been a big uh, player uh, in the region. And it's interesting uh, when you go back and you even examine the foreign policy uh, uh, goals of the Kissinger-Nixon years, mm -hmm. the famous tilt to Pakistan uh, has almost doomed this region uh, in some kind of convoluted way if it's uh you know inception into individual nation states by the legacy of the british empire hadn't already thoroughly doomed it and of course this uh, tribal area this uh, this northwestern uh, border with afghanistan is uh just an amazing story in and of itself it's essentially a, a lawless region where even the pakistani government really doesn't control it bin laden is no doubt uh nearby and uh, the porous border with Afghanistan and Pakistan are uh, amazing. I think I've read that there have been well over 600 actual uh, deaths in Pakistan this year from various terrorist uh, activities. So while there may be some marginal improvement in Iraq, and uh, let's just reinforce that 899 Americans died this year in Iraq, um, the deadliest year of Iraq uh, for the American yeah. occupation, so despite the fact that there's been some marginal improvement, 
uh, in the Baghdad area, uh, the United States is, uh, well, it's uh, out in the ocean uh, in shark-infested waters. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and it's costing us billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. And uh, the, the staggering cost of these uh, disastrous wars by President Bush uh, are definitely part of his legacy. Well, as is the fall of the dollar, the decline of the yeah. dollar. A uh, number of stories here at the year end about that. Probably uh, can get into more details later. Um, but with regards to uh, what's you know uh, going to be the, the fallout of the Bhutto assassination in Pakistan, um, whether or not he is involved or the Pakistani military or intelligence is itself involved, uh, it, it's pretty clear that although he's politically weakened, uh, Musharraf is in some ways the the most uh, likely to benefit. Um, there is probably going to be a lot of sympathy votes, but let's face it, Bhutto was an articulate, charismatic person, and, and, and although the secret deal had been kind of worked out uh, that she would be allowed to return, run for president, and that she and Musharraf would, would rule in coalition... Um, was probably seen as the best possible scenario for the Bush administration mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Um, it's pretty remarkable, uh, the impossible position that our uh, so-called, well, let's call it the push for democracy in the Mideast, um, has put America in rhetorically and ideolo ideologically uh, regarding our allies. Um, today, Musharraf is an embarrassment to the Bush administration because he's a military dictator, overthrow you know elected figures in a coup but he's taken off the uniform he's taken off that uniform <laughs> and that makes it somehow less embarrassing it's uh still barely cosmetic but um that was enough to uh you know well okay that's a start um but you know if you look at the the history of uh united states foreign policy since world war ii we've always tag teamed with dictators sure and this you know empty language of you know the push for democracy we've got to make the world safe for democracy has never really been true well and the tilt towards pakistan in and of itself has always been interesting to me because it was part of a concept that nixon tricky dick uh, master statesman master statesman uh his foreign policy he got china right uh, we'll give him credit on that, and, and even detente to some extent. But there's more evidence, by the way, emerging that the United States and the Soviet Union cooperated on far more things than people realize. Hmm. But it was the non-aligned movement in the 50s when the Dulles brothers were in charge, and Nixon, of course, was uh, technically a member of the National Security Council. He used to attend many of the meetings, and in fact, he may have actually had more of a role in foreign policy uh, than has previous, previously been acknowledged by historians simply because Eisenhower was kind of old and over mm -hmm. the hill and left a lot of the foreign policy decisions to the Dulles brothers. But uh, John Foster Dulles in particular, from many of the history books that I've been reading this year in particular, uh, was very negative on the so-called non-aligned movement. He regarded the non-aligned movement as... And these were countries, just for people too young to remember, that were neither aligned with uh, NATO in the West or the Soviets in the East. Yeah, and, and of course the three big international leaders that were leading the charge were Nasser in Egypt, um, Sukarno in uh, Indonesia, and Nehru, who was Indira Gandhi's uh, father, in India. 
And John Foster Dulles used to say that the non-aligned movement is the same as communism. <laughs> so there was a very jaundiced view taken, and it's interesting how the United States subsequently overthrew. Mm -hmm. They were heavily involved in the Indonesian coup d'etat that occurred in the mid-60s, in which a nominally um, communist uh, or socialist-leaning leader was replaced by a military dictatorship there. And, of course, Indonesia went through just absolutely horrendous uh, political violence. Uh, it's now well known that the CIA gave uh, Suharto, the military dictator that took over there, the names of many communists, and they were executed. And this collaboration with murky um, third world leaders even included during the 1980s, remarkably, the fact that the United States gave uh, Khomeini uh, intelligence about Iranian communists that were executed. Right. <laughs> so it's a remarkable story that really uh, goes back uh, decades. And uh, I would uh, certainly um, recommend Tariq Ali, for one, uh, as an intellectual. He's written several books about the region. Yeah, his Bush in Babylon book is an excellent history, yeah. um, not just of... Uh, U.S. involvement there currently, but political history in Iraq is very easy to digest and, and comprehend. And, of course, what's interesting about this uh, article, Daughter of the West, by Tariq Ali in the 13th of December edition of the London Review of Books that you may be able to obtain online, that's lrb.uk, uh, since it's published out of London, uh, is his basic skepticism of Bhutu's uh, role in returning. Um, one intellectual put it quite well. The Bush administration probably pushed this policy too hard and too fast. And obviously the instability in Pakistan in recent months um, is worse than uh, had even been feared. Yeah, worse than even been feared. And it's, it's just another <laughs> example of the grandiose concept that these neoconservatives have come up with, that somehow the United States is going to be able to remake the region. Uh, this is a pipe dream. And unfortunately, we don't know what those guys are smoking in that pipe. Nothing good. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not even good Afghan ganja, probably. Yeah. If they only they would smoke that, they might uh, become more enlightened. Um, but uh, it's an interesting ongoing story. It will be fascinating to see if these elections are postponed. There are rumors that this is uh, what will Four happen. Four months is yeah. the, uh, the latest uh, the financial times of today's suggesting uh, will likely be the case. And, of course, the reason for the postponement is obviously there would be a huge sympathy vote uh, right, for the so-called opposition parties, and, well, and this uh, would no further undermine Musharraf. Yeah, and uh, Nawaz Sharif has also uh, reversed himself and said, well, no, I am going to participate. Um, there would be very little point indeed in his boycotting the elections. Now, um, as far as critiques from within the... Um, Pakistani People's Party PPP um, this you know new story that her son will eventually inherit the mantle I think is the uh, phrase that's going to keep getting used here um, some are criticizing it as a quote missed opportunity to wean the party away from its powerful founding dynasty uh, but in fact as you point out he's too young constitutionally to be prime minister and uh, he's got to finish school yeah, and, and of course the 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 husband of Benazir Bhutto is now 
theoretically in charge, and he's uh, infamously known as the ten percent man. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, having allegedly made uh, somewhere somewhere around a billion dollars uh, in money that was siphoned off from American aid. Well, certainly uh, Musharraf has learned a thing or two about that. I think how many, how many billions have gone to Pakistan since nine eleven? Probably, I think the rough number is about ten billion. Yeah, and uh, you know there wasn't spare uh, security uh, to provide, you know, access to and from the sites where she was uh, speaking um, for Benazir Bhutto. I think some of those uh, criticisms are uh, well on target. Forgive the expression. Um, you mentioned earlier the bizarre autopsy things. I mean, just this is such a statement of desperation. It's it's hard enough to figure out what actually happened, who actually did it, what their motives might have been, and, and who stands to gain from a, a, a terrible thing like this. But when uh, the government of Pakistan issues a startling claim that she was killed neither by gunshots nor shrapnel, but instead a skull fracture when she hit her head on the SUV's sunroof. Well, the the startling noise of the explosion caused her to fall, according to this theory, and she bumped her head and died. I mean, this is like boldface lies. Yeah, well, just incredible that they would even make such a statement. Well, and the and the video, and of course, it's uh, you know the infamous uh, connection to the Zabruder film. They're now beginning to relook at the video, and it actually does appear that she dies of a gunshot yeah. wound. But then, of course, you would think that the assassin, whoever that was, was then blown up by the suicide bomber. So it's got all the elements of the uh, Patsy in the frame up. Yes. You know, you do the shooting. He doesn't know anything about a suicide bomber. Correct. So anybody could be behind that. Um, of course, it's got the earmarks of Al-Qaeda. Uh, they seem to be everywhere. There were there were some horrific bombings recently in Algeria, and there was a group calling themselves Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, taking responsibility. Um, this is starting to become ridiculous. <laughs> Al-Qaeda's everywhere, you know. They... But again, see, that plays into Bush and Musharraf's favor, uh, that idea, you know. And when you see Fox News, their, you know, big graphics department, you know, those people must be constantly doing cocaine and watching Nazi propaganda to come up with such quick, bold, striking visuals all the time because the uh, big screen background in the uh, wake of the Budo assassination was not her, her legacy, you know, what's going to happen with this election, but the emphasis on Al-Qaeda and nuclear weapons. Yeah, falling in the wrong hands, well... <laughs> We don't know whose hands they're actually in. Well, I think the Pakistani military, regardless of, you know, the questions there, who in the military is an al-Qaeda sympathizer or what have you. But uh, let's face it, the country is run by the military. Yeah. And so I think as long as they remain in military hands, those are in safe hands. Why would, why would they be? We probably have worse security here on our nuclear weapons than the Pakistani military does over their own. Yeah, and of course it is... It, at a, in a larger sense, the a tragedy, but somebody, uh, some intellectual that I can't remember, um, and I think some of the uh, radio coverage has been quite good, certainly better than the television coverage, but uh, someone pointed out that all of the leaders of Pakistan have either been overthrown by the military or died of a violent death. Right. So it's an amazing um, situation, and, uh, well... 
what will happen next is anybody's guess, but uh, don't count on, uh, shall we say, national intelligence estimates by our CIA <coughs> to get anything correct. <laughs> They've been pretty much wrong about everything. Indeed. Um, over the holidays, I read a fascinating book, uh, a controversial book that's been in the news that I just wanted to briefly mention because I highly recommend this book. It's The Is Israel Lobby oh. and U.S. Foreign Policy by John Mearsheimer and Stephen M. Walt. This is an actual elaboration on the uh, infamous London Review, Re Review of Books article uh, from last spring that ended up in the London Review of Books because the Atlantic Monthly uh, put the kibosh on the article itself. But it's uh, amazing uh, to read this book. And there are no... Um, there's no anti-Semitism in this book. This is just nonsense. This is a, kind of a cold, you know, a, 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 a dispassionate analysis of the uh, American-Israeli relationship. And it's, uh, it, it's far more extensive than even I realized. That's, that's one of the interesting things about this book regarding the power of AIPAC and the so-called special relationship. Just a couple of quick facts that, you know, are startling to me. Uh, they write, as of 2005, direct U.S. economic and military assistance to Israel has amounted to $154 billion, uh, the bulk of it consisting in direct grants rather than loans. By the way, Israel apparently is given the money at the beginning of the fiscal year in January, and they uh, are allowed to do what they want with the money. There's no analysis of how it's spent. And as one expert put it, the money is fungible. There's no way to tell how Israel uses U.S. aid, and, of course, it's been used, unfortunately, as we well know, to expand settlements uh, in the region. Ever in the news, but always kind of in the background. Uh, Representative Lee Hamilton, who interestingly was on the 9-11 Commission, told reporters that Israel was one of three countries whose aid, quote, substantially exceeds the popularly quoted figures. And he said that the annual figure was, in fact, closer to $4.3 billion. The advertised amount of money, by the way, is $3 billion in direct foreign assistance. Uh, and Walton Mearsheimer report that uh, this is roughly one-sixth of America's direct foreign assistance budget and equal to about 2% of Israel's GDP. Um, and it uh, amounts to $500 per year. Uh, for each Israeli. So this is just a fascinating book. Those are some of the highlights uh, from the beginning. Uh, it goes into the broader questions of uh, foreign policy in the region. And, of course, uh, they argue, as we've argued down here, that Israel, in fact, is not a reliable ally in the region, but a strategic liability, and that uh, these, this uh, economic and military aid is uh, given uh, with not enough strings attached, not enough accountability, and not enough examination for America's interests in the region. And it is well known that the uh, plan to invade Iraq uh, emanated out of a Benjamin Netanyahu's office in the mid-90s uh, in which Douglas Fife, David Wormser, and others uh, crafted um, Wolfowitz uh, was also uh, somewhat involved, so and Richard Pearl. So it's it's amazing stuff. Highly recommended. Uh, the Israel 
Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy by John Walt, or excuse me, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt of Harvard University. Yeah, it's interesting that even uh, Jimmy Carter's book, uh, which uses the A word in its title, Apartheid, um, came under heavy, heavy uh, criticism uh, for really only the mildest of critiques mm -hmm. of uh, Israeli policies in the region and U.S. support um, for those policies. Um, the sensitivity, if you want to use that word, uh, over, of course, a highly emotionally charged issue is in some cases understandable, but there's a, a defensiveness here that is willing to tar any critic at all with... Uh, one of the darkest brushes that there is, you know, to to call somebody an anti-Semite merely for criticizing the policies of the nation of Israel um, is a pretty heinous tactic. And uh, that is the reason why the article wasn't published in the Atlantic Monthly. Um, you can't print that. It's anti-Semitic. Exactly. And that, of course, as these authors point out, is a canard that is not worthy of a legitimate debate. I mean, that's what they want to have on the uh, subject of aid to Israel. And uh, I would recommend reading for, for all people to read this book uh, to get a different perspective. Just about five minutes left here on the uh, last program of uh, calendar year 2007 for Gray Matters. Uh, Tex Mannheim will be bringing you the Yazoo City Calling Show tonight. So I'm sure that will uh, be well worth sticking around for. Um, couple of short clips here uh, related to uh, tourism uh, in the Holy Land over the uh, holiday season. Of course, Bethlehem, long a site of uh, religiously inclined travelers. But of course, in recent years, uh, those numbers have been way down. Uh, Bethlehem, of course, happening to fall within uh, the Palestinian West Bank. <clears throat> this is a very, you know, important source of uh, money. Uh, for the region and uh, numbers up slightly this year um, I think about 65,000 was the hoped for number I'm not sure if there's any total yet on uh, how many actually made it but in this article uh, which appeared uh, this 26th of December day after Christmas um, numbers here which speak I think volumes about recent language by Ehud Olmert about why Israel's not going to, you know, hold back on the settlement. Uh, this is just the endlessly uh, rotating door here. Um, throughout the conflict that has killed more than 4,400 Palestinians and 1,100 Israelis in the past seven years, it is clear that despite slight improvements, peace is not yet at hand. Well, those are interesting numbers, 4,400 and 1,100. Um, and yet... In a recent shooting, <clears throat> this from the Financial Times by uh, Tobias Brook, um, the announcement by Ehud Olmert that uh, Israel would not ease restrictions on movement and access for Palestinians in the West Bank unless the Palestinian leadership moved more forcefully against armed groups. Um, this is not even coming in and out of, of Israel proper. This is just movement within the West Bank. And so there are extremely tight uh, network of obstacles there. Well, what happened to Israeli citizens? Uh, this article says near uh, the West Bank town of Hebron were out hiking and were shot uh, in their hometown of Kiryat Arba, a settlement. 
which is unoccupied Palestinian land. So here are citizens who have a hometown that is not even in the country that they are citizens of. Mm -hmm. So there's a real semantic problem here with the way that uh, this settlement problem is sort of played as a sort of a semantic footsie uh, that, well, they're Israelis, but they live on occupied land in uh, outside of Israel's as a sovereign state. Um, and this is fairly remarkable, uh, the claim that Israel cannot make any changes that may expose it to dangers and create security hazards. Well, the numbers speak very clearly that the security hazards, of course, are real, but that the security hazards for Palestinians are much more deadly. Yeah, and, and Walt and Mersheimer go into that, by the way. The numbers on the intif various intifadas is fascinating uh, regarding how the, uh, the second intifada uh, proved to be... Um, the first intifada was far more uh, disproportionate in terms of Palestinian deaths than one might think. It was well over 10 to 1. Now, the second intifada, it was more like 3.5 to 1. Uh, real quickly, obviously the Iowa caucuses are coming up, yep, and this yep. is fascinating uh, democracy in action. Uh, my analysis of it real quick is that the, uh, the Democratic race will probably be a bit of a wash. It's obvious that Obama, uh, John Edwards, and Hillary Clinton will get roughly the same amount of uh, votes. I think Edwards is going to pull off a slight win, but mm. it'll be enough of a wash uh, that it won't really matter. Edwards, is it's probably more crucial that he do well in Iowa than any of the others. And certainly Bill Richardson is, an, is another guy to keep an eye on. Uh, if he can get that 15% threshold, that could be very interesting. And it will be fascinating to see if Joe Biden somehow benefits from the events in Pakistan. As for the Republicans, that appears to be a, a mud fight between Huckabee and Romney that's certainly starting to turn into... To quote Woody Allen, Jujunosity. <laughs> Hilarious thing. Huckabee has a big press conference today in which he agrees to pull an ad, and then he shows the ad to the reporters, and it's a negative ad. So it's you know it's it's the classic. Right. I get the free advertisement, but I'm pulling the ad anyway, <laughs> allowing the media to comment on it for a couple of days. So this is fascinating. Keep your eye on Ron Paul, however. Uh, I've he's not a dark horse in my opinion, but he is a wild card and uh, he could do surprisingly well in New Hampshire of all places oh. uh, where independents are allowed to vote in either party's primary. Oh, and that, of course, cool. is next week. So it'll be interesting to see how badly Giuliani does in Iowa and New Hampshire, because uh, as we've argued down here, he's uh, starting to fade. He's hoping to revive uh, terrorism as his main selling point. And Fred Thompson, I don't know. He's just uh, too old to pull the wagon, as I say. So I see the, uh, uh, the aftermath of Iowa not changing things that much. This seems to be a kind of a two-man race in the Republican mm -hmm. side. Huckabee against uh, Romney with McCain now as a dark horse. Ron Paul as a wild card. I think the rest of that crew will drop out uh, pretty shortly. And Iowa, I think, will be a wash for the Democrats and they will fight uh, other battles in upcoming states, including Michigan's disastrous, <laughs> convoluted caucus primary situation. That's going to be confusing. That's coming up on the 15th. I don't even know how it works. It's, it's so bizarre. Anyway, uh, we're sort of guessing that we're pretty much out of time.